Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Reed Hoffman, who I'm pleased to welcome back to the broadcast. Reed's an iconic Silicon Valley entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and author. Perhaps best known as the co-founder and former chief executive officer of LinkedIn, as well as a member of the so-called PayPal Mafia, as an early board member and executive at that company. Reed was also an early stage angel investor in companies such as Facebook and Airbnb. Since 2009, he's been a partner at the venture capital firm Greylock Partners, where he focuses on early stage investing. He hosts the podcast, Masters of Scale, and he's co-authored multiple books, including the most recent, Blitzscaling, The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. In this interview, we discuss the current pandemic and the economic crisis and how one must lean on one's ecosystem for insights and support while offering the same back into the ecosystem. We also cover how the pandemic has caused previous market failures to move to market readiness. We discuss the importance of entrepreneurs co-designing their go-to-market strategy, and the precise definition of blitzscaling, along with its application to large companies. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about privacy at Zoho and that we had removed all trackers of our sites, including Google Analytics. Believe it or not, Peter, but Natasha Lomas of TechCrunch reports that Salesforce and Oracle are hit with $10 billion lawsuit over trackers on their site. The suit will argue that mass surveillance of Internet users to carry out real-time bidding ad auctions cannot possibly be compatible with strict EU laws around consent to process personal data. The litigants believe the collective claims could exceed 10 billion euros. When you use any of Zoho's SaaS products to digitize the enterprise, you can rest assured that we don't read your information or spam you or sell your or your customer's information to the highest bidder. We are both GDPR and CCPA compliant. Find out more at zoho.com slash privacy. Thanks, Timothy. And now on to the interview. This interview is recorded in front of a virtual audience as part of MetaStrategy's Digital Symposium. Reed, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. Uh, Reed, a theme that's come up across the day has been the notion of ecosystem and the necessity during a time like this to cast one's net widely for insight and inspiration. Um, you know, navigating a difficult path that's really unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, having the strength of one's ecosystem to test hypotheses, uh, to ask questions or simply to cry on the, on the shoulder of someone else, at least virtually for the time being, it becomes increasingly important. You're one of the legends uh, in terms of building and developing ecosystems as the entrepreneur behind LinkedIn. I know for me personally, my, my business ecosystem is largely represented through my LinkedIn account. Um, so I wonder if you can share some, some of your own thoughts about the power of ecosystem during a time like this. So obviously part of what happens in this kind of transition is to say that a bunch of previous mechanisms by which we made business run, 
not just obviously customers and restaurants, so forth, as was described somewhat earlier before, but also like how you would build new business relationships, how you make decisions to invest, how you would how you would grow, make sales, how you'd hire, all get highly fragmented. It's like an asteroid hits everything. Because even if your business can work pretty well by distributed workforces, you know, technology, people working at home, still coding at home, et cetera, you've got supply chains and you've got everything else. And so part of what you end up looking for is like, well, what are the ways that you immediately go to resilience? What are some of the ways that you you should always, you know, you start by playing essentially a defensive game? Like, how do you shore up? How do you go longer? Like in my venture business, that's how do you do uh, defensive financings, expecting there to be more volatility and more bumps. But then you move to saying, okay, well, given the change and that part of the entrepreneurial environment, like developing new companies, new technologies is that changes the landscape a lot. So how do you then play crisis and opportunity? Right? There's this old, you know, kind of kind of semi-mythical Chinese character where the, uh, you know, uh, word that where crisis and opportunities do the same. It's semi-mythical because it doesn't exactly mean it that way, but yet in a sense, that myth exists because there should be. Uh, that when you have these crises, you move from defense to offense and you start thinking, okay, what are the things that we can do now that make our game stronger, that allow us to play into growth and play into the new kinds of opportunities that this asteroid having hit the economy all around the world and and just, you know, like huge amount of, of, of chaos and uncertainty and some pain and suffering, you know, what could you then do? That's interesting. You know, in your Masters of Scale podcast, you've had a number of fantastic sessions, interviews with um, executives uh, talking about the acute issues they're facing right now and the ways in which they're going about attempting to resolve those. I particularly recommend the June 27th broadcast with Delta's CEO, Ed Bastian, where he spoke really clearly and at times painfully um, about the realities of their business and how they've changed and in some cases perhaps are, are changing for the long term. It was really a, f- a phenomenal uh, set of insights that he offered. Um, you know, you've also talked about in the past uh, that there's this phrase that people incorrectly attribute to Darwin. It's actually from an LSU management professor that it's not the strongest or the most intelligent that survive. It's the most adaptable. And and I wonder if you could take a moment and talk about that concept of adaptability and uh, a little bit further and talk about some of the key ingredients you see in terms of one's ability to adapt. So... Bastion's response, by the way, was excellent, as do many of the kind of the rapid response folks. I mean, and I'll get some in-depth on the adaptability side, but like one of the, the core things is always to be human, right? To understand that 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 in this asteroid, there's just tons of of stress and suffering and everything else. It's it's true in your employees, it's true in your customers, it's true in your supply chain, it's true in your management communications, it's true in your shareholders. And so you always kind of like figure out how, like to, while you're operating sometimes in very short, like, like sometimes you have to respond really quickly. Sometimes you have to have much broader understanding, which is one of the things that Bastion was talking about in one, one area, but whatever you do, be human first and, and, and to navigate that. And we've seen that across a number of great leaders in the entire you know, kind of business world. And so, and then the question about adaptability is is kind of really fundamental because what happens when you get to these kind of crisis moments is it, it isn't like the simple metaphor is you've got this kind of musical chairs 
where the music's playing and the chairs are being reshuffled and taken away and replaced in other places. But to some degree, that's almost too simple of a metaphor because what happens is the market's changing, capital's changing, what's going on with your employees is changing. Because even though you kind of get to uh, tech industry and you say, well, people can do most of the stuff remotely, it's really easy to go do all virtual when you're like a software constructor as your primary business. But then, of course, you have the kids at home, <laughs> right? And you have a bunch of other things going on. So, so like everything kind of changes and you have to start saying, all right, what really matters here is not planning the perfection in efficient in the kind of the efficiency curve, but in planning the okay, here is how we try to figure out what the principles of the current normal is. We know that the current normal is volatile and will be changing. So even if we say, okay, well now it looks like the principles X, that may actually even vary. So you have to be measuring much more constantly. You can't just kind of presume that you've had, like in startup parlance, your previous product market fit. You have to think the product market fit may be changing. You have to be, uh, presume that you say, well, okay, we got this new cadence about how meetings work and how we're recording the information and we're getting to people and communicating. But that may not actually be, like you may have figured out the first month or two that everyone was kind of getting to the, okay, this is the way it worked. But that may still be an evolving metric and then be changing and, and what actually worked and didn't work. And so you're, you're, Principal thing has to be kind of constantly reevaluating and at different clocks because some of the stuff you go, okay, that we can reevaluate every month or every six months, <laughs> right? This we're reevaluating every, every couple of days. And, and as we're moving and we're getting the, the signals from that. And part of the, I'd say the principal thing on adaptability is to be aware, like people frequently kind of say, okay, so, you know, COVID hit in you know, kind of March for many of the shelter in place in a lot of the, you know, kind of U.S. and, and European, you know, kind of principalities, you know, China obviously in a different different shape. And then, okay, this is what that normal looks like. And then there will be this new normal once all that comes up. And you're like, okay, what we're actually going to have is waves of COVID. The, 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 the fact that you kind of have one predictable thing and then it rebuilds to what the old normal was that's not going to happen, right? So you've got to be thinking, okay, so I iterate and adapt, and then I iterate and adapt again. Then I iterate and adapt again. And sometimes you need to make very big adaptations. And you need to be choosing what are the prioritization. Is that a defense of an offense a game? Which part of it's for now? Which part of it may persist really effectively and importantly in the next year or two? And how do you bake that in your operations, given, of course, scale organizations have a lot more difficulty getting the adaptation right because part of what you do is you get you have you know x thousands or tens of thousands of employees you've built in a system by which everyone's coordinating so getting that all shifting is actually in fact painful and difficult and so now you have to start saying well how do i build in some flexibility of adaptability in the whole system because i know that i'm going to need to be doing that yeah that's an interesting answer and i on a related topic, I heard you say uh, that a lesson that you took from PayPal and LinkedIn uh, in different ways was this need to co-design products and services with your um, go-to-market, your sales and marketing teams. And as it relates to the response you just gave, just for further context, um, a lot of people in our audience today are global chief information officers of big companies, um, CIOs who themselves are getting much more involved in product development for obvious reasons. And, and I wonder if you could take a moment and, and tune some of your insights about that need for collaboration with the quote-unquote go-to-market 
um, for lessons uh, as one is developing products and services. Uh, I would be interested in your insights there. So first I'll give the kind of two-minute version of the standard piece of advice to give entrepreneurs. Because a frequent mistake of entrepreneurship is that you go, oh, I've got this new idea for this product or service. And then people are going to really love this product or service. And this is where my invention is, is this product or service. And by the way, you may have an awesome product service. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's really useful. But the problem is they say, okay, and then we'll just get it to market. And it's a, it's a version of you build it and they will come mistake, which is for uh, a successful scale entrepreneurship, you should co-design your go-to-market whether it's like virality, like LinkedIn, but it can be other things like, and what your channels and go to market is along with your product and service. Because one of the things I tell entrepreneurs when I'm, you know, kind of giving this as a, as a really gritty piece of advice is look, if two consumer internet things came to me and one had a great go to market idea with a mediocre product idea, and one had a great product idea with a mediocre go to market idea, I would take the great go to market idea because if I can get it there, I can use customer feedback and I can iterate the product and there's a bunch of stuff I can do. Whereas no one ever sees the product, doesn't matter how good it is. Right? If you can't get it to scale, it just doesn't matter. And that's the, that, that's the, that, that's the grit of that lesson. Now, when you, you say, well, now we're in this new universe. And as part of this new universe, the way that we operate is through these mechanisms, through WebEx or you know, through Slack or through you know, like one of my investments, Coda or it was a kind of distributed productivity tool, but you know, you, there's a number of them. And you say, okay, we're now operating that way. Well, you now have to say, well, that operation actually plays into what is our competitive offense and defense. Like, how do we do product innovation? How do we do operational innovation? And like these tools are now even more fundamental to the way that we're playing when we're doing so in this kind of shelter in place or remote, you know, and and, and different ways of doing it. So I actually would say is like, which strategies you're executing would have a lot to do with, well, what's the ways that we can make that organizational capability work? And so that same kind of co-design that you're referring to, that, you, that, that, that plays in the general entrepreneurship case, probably plays in the, what is the go forward operations case? Because, you know, like, you know, part of the, the, the you know, the kind of almost every aspect of business gets touched by this new environment. Like, how does sales play? How does recruiting play? How does uh, business organization play? <laughs> right? How does you know uh, capitalization play? All of this ties to these ways. And one of the things that happens now is that a bunch of things that we previously would rely upon, and you know we'll get back to, but previously would rely upon being in the office as a way that we coordinate and operate effectively. We now need to have both some current different things and different things that project into the future. And so I think a classic one will be is, well, what are the ways that we are, we are sharing information and what are the ways that we're building that information to decisions and actions and how are we taking those actions? Which will now, it's a great time to kind of experiment with new kinds of collective productivity tools that you then say, oh, this one really works for me. And so even when we get back to, because say we go back to the office and you know, people say, well, it was 5%. Of remote work before, and now it'll be 10% or 20%. That still means 80 to 90% you'll get back to the office. We're back to the office, but we're still going to use this as a fundamental thing. And that's one of the opportunities that you see in adapting to the, the, the you know, pandemic asteroid. Reed, I'd like to pivot towards your life as an investor. You're now a partner at Greylock and have been for a number of years now. I'm curious, where do you, um, 
how is your philosophy or your investment theses, how have they changed as a result of the current crisis? So on one hand, you'd think, because it's an asteroid, you'd think everything changed. And the actual answer is 10% is changed. And the reason is, is because what Greylock, uh, what we do at Greylock is we go, it's 10 plus year journeys from a seed or series A to industry transformation. And so it's those trends of industry transformation, like, and all of like, when I looked at this poll, I was looking for an all button, <laughs> right? Because these, like, it, it, we invest in basically all of these categories and have been for over two decades, I think. I mean, we were, Greylock was one of the earliest ones in the general cloud transformation side. And so, and so basically you say, well, look, it's the same thing. What's an investment now that 10 to 15 years from now will be totally transformational? It uses the advancement of technological platforms, everything from the internet to mobile to cloud to AI, you know, like the, 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 these directional platforms. Now, the things that change are, are, are essentially kind of two things. One is the, easy, the, 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 the kind of obvious thing, but still worth mentioning. And then the other one maybe is a little bit less obvious. The, the, the obvious thing is, well, we're, we're having this accelerated digital transformation, this accelerated transformational cloud. And so that means that there is kind of a like gale force winds behind these, behind these companies, which means something that you might have said, well, we won't take that experiment yet because that'll really start playing out five to 10 years from now. And we should make that investment later. We should make it now, right? Because the rate of change in this is, is so big. That going down and betting on what might have otherwise looked like a fringe market or might miss this current technological window because one of the myths, everyone here knows this, but they go, oh, you build once and then it works. It's actually all technology thing is rebuild, 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 rebuild. And so if, if, if you built too early, then the, the actual, it's the next generation of the, of, of the technology that starts taking the market. I think like virtual reality is an obvious one of that. When you look back, there's been tons and tons of virtual reality, you know, these, you know, a bunch of investment, a bunch of death, a bunch of investment, a bunch of death, a bunch of investment, a bunch of death. And, you know, at some point it'll work, but it's like, it's that kind of thing. And that's true for all of these technological things until the model and the product market fit starts working. And then you take your current proceeds and your business and you're reinvesting it constantly, which sometimes you stay on the right path and sometimes you, you veer off. And so, anyways, that's the obvious one, which is the gale force winds behind digital transformation, which applies to all of the five categories in the poll and others for how they operate. Now, the one that's, that's perhaps a little bit less obvious is the thing that's interesting is how much of, because of, of, a little bit like what we were just talking about, is part of the adoption cycles are when do you think the market's ready? Right. So like, for example, in some theory, you could actually have a whole VR thing. Now, all, all the movies could have moved to VR already if you actually had the consumer demand where people said, that's what I really want. Those are the theaters I'm going to go to. That's the equipment I'm going to buy at home. That's the equipment I'm going to put on my computer. And that's what I really want. And you had this massive demand, then we'd be there. So you have this question about the readiness of the of the end market, whether it's a B2B market, B2C market or anything else. And so the thing that's interesting about some of the aspects of the pandemic is how much previous market failures or market unreadiness is now move, going to move to market readiness. And perhaps the clearest example of that is telehealth, because previously there's been tons of decades of telehealth investments, none of which are particularly, some of them are good, none of which are particularly great. 
And the reason is a combination of the, the wealthy ends of, end of the market, because there's all kind of theory about why telehealth should work the way it is, because you know, like it's cheaper to provide, it gives you much wider range, you don't need to be next to these medical centers. And you know, there's there's tons and tons of reasons to do this. But previously you go, well, older people and people with chronic illness are the big lucrative markets. And they said, nope, actually, I want to go to my doctor. I want to go to my GP. I don't want to, I want to do that. I don't want to be an early doctor on this stuff. So there was no driving force there. And then regulation tends to follow that. And in the health space, you tend to get a lot of, of, of like, oh, let's lock in the present because we want to exclude the bad future. But of course, you wrap into excluding some of the good future as well. And so you had all these really intense regulations that made innovation harder. You get the pandemic. Well, what happens is I don't have a chance to go to the, you know, like, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to go see my GP. I don't want to do it through telehealth. And it doesn't matter. That's what I want to do. So you got a huge market demand, which suddenly opens up this. And then regulation follows that because they're like, no, no, we don't want to. We want people doing as much as they can from home because it's part of, of, of public health and safety. So all of a sudden, I think what was previously a, 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 a difficult market to navigate to get to the future as you think, as you see it, as it should be, now will be accelerated. And I think we will see, because by the way, once telehealth really starts being developed and really used on a broad basis, then all of a sudden you, you start using AI underneath all of the interactions that are already in telehealth. Because now all of that's captured as data and you can start doing suggestions of, of prognosis or even AI front ends. When I come into the, to telehealth, it goes, oh, well, let's do the following. Like, show me, I got this thing. And, you know, da, 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 da. And it's like, okay. And that all works. And that all unlocks now because of this early market unlock, which is the conditioning of the human market because of the pandemic. And that's a really straightforward, obvious one. But I think there's a bunch of other ones that, you know, smart VCs and smart entrepreneurs are, are looking at as to what changes because of the pandemic. Reed, you, you wrote a book, as I mentioned before, called Blitzscaling, the lightning fast path to building massively valuable companies. In fact, the last time you and I spoke on the record was after that book's release. And in the book, um, as well as in other venues, you've talked about and written about uh, the application of the concept of blitzscaling for larger enterprises, uh, the ones that have already become massively valuable. They've already scaled, uh, at least for, for the first go around. And um, obviously, your primary audience and a lot of your experience, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor, is is taking a startup and scaling it, uh, needless to say. But I wonder if, if you could take a moment and talk a bit more about the blitzscaling lessons for organizations that are already at massive scale. So the thing that's really important to, to track about blitzscaling is its relative speed. So in the book, we talk about these things called Glengarry Glen Ross markets, which are the more that you get to a network world, you tend to have office movie and play by David Mamet, the sales competition, which is first prize is Cadillac, second prize is steak knives, third prize is you're fired. And it's the first to scale that really matters. And so then people tend to mistranslate that as, as grow big fast no matter what. And actually, in fact, it's the first to scale product market fit, not just scale, but scale product market fit that actually uh, tends to be the first prize and so forth. And that's the thing that you're accelerating. Now, that does mean you take a variety of risks within kind of classic blitzscaling. You, you take a risk. You may even risk, like, I don't know what my business model is. <laughs> right? You may be going, here I go, and I don't know how this business model works. And by the way, one of the, the most starting ones of that is Google. 
right? Like Google didn't actually know. It took years to work out AdWords. They didn't know if and then they, and their first, the financing plan that they was financed by Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins on was enterprise search. We'll sell you a box for your enterprise to do search over your your current internal data because like who makes money on public search? And so so that is a classic part of kind of blitzscaling. Now, the important thing that people realize they say, well, currently this current market you have to play more. You have to be very intelligent to resilience and adaptation and the defense game and not offense game and capital may become at a higher premium and and it's harder to move at the same speed given that you know how do you recruit so fast when when it's all you know kind of WebEx and virtual as you're as you're as you're doing and it's still it's relative speed it's relative applications the precise definition of blitzscaling is prioritizing speed over-efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. Well, we certainly have an environment of uncertainty. So more things are moving into the environment of uncertainty. But then the question is, which specific prioritizations of speed over-efficiency? And then the thing I think that you, you, you add in, as per my earlier comments, is you say, well, also, typically in kind of more stable environments, you're, you're unlocking a bunch of things that have to do with, I prove this part of product market fit, I prove this investment thesis, part of the investment thesis or hypothesis about how where the world is moving, how my product service is working, how my operations are working. And then I build upon that until I get to this really big scale. Well, now actually you're building in adaptability as you're doing. It. You're saying, I presume that even though I'm built, proving out some, some product market fit, some theses, those might change. And so I'm keeping that monitoring going and I'm keeping that flexibility going. So I think part of what happens with blitzscaling now is to say, as opposed to lock in on the things you know and absolutely put the jetpack behind them, I think a little bit of it is say, look, still speed matters, still relative speed matters, but what make sure is to make sure you maintain some flexibility, right? In in a kind of a you know a military metaphor, make take sure you can do some dogfighting. Make sure you can change some, right? And you have to bake that all the way back in your organization, which is part of the reason why you ask the CIOs, you know, participation in business operations and, you know, how, to, how innovation and how operations work, because you have to have that adaptability with how you're playing. A couple of different audience questions I want to combine here. Um, from your perspective, advising a number of companies, big companies like Microsoft and Airbnb, whose boards you've served on, as well as the startups uh, that you've invested in. Um, and I hasten to add before even posing the question that you're not an epidemiologist, uh, though maybe you've played one on TV. Uh, we, we'd love to get your perspectives on how far out are you planning for the recovery? And also, what does the new normal look like? So I think the the... Uh, a little bit, some of the, the, the permanent changes are things that I mentioned, which is how does it get accelerated? How does the market get reconditioned? Some of the things that when you think about like, okay, so here's how we do these remote only meetings. When should we have uh, groups or teams that are primarily remote? How do we make that operate? How do we change with new kind of collaboration tools? I think you have a huge acceleration in kind of like what, what are the ways that we're collaborating? Uh, and what are the ways to facilitate that? And by the way, one of the benefits is that more of that that gets into the digital arena, you can be powered by these new platforms like AI and other kinds of things in terms of in terms of how they play. So I think that's all all there and all anticipated. Now, relative to the pandemic, I myself am not an expert. And I haven't tried to play even an epidemiologist on television. I do have the benefit of being friends with Bill Gates, <laughs> uh, who I was talking about this 
with yesterday. <laughs> so I have a I have an expert opinion because he and his team are experts. And you know, roughly speaking, basically 2021, no sooner almost for sure. But 2021, I mean December maybe, but December at the absolute earliest is when we'll begin to get some real data on therapeutics, on vaccines. I mean, we may get some data on vaccines and scalability as early as next month, but it won't be scalable yet. And we may go, oh yeah, that works probably, but we're still working it out over the next couple of months. And so there's a high level that the the medical responses will be good enough sometime, now there's 12 months in 2021, but will be good enough to get us back to a regularity place, especially from a U.S. and you know, kind of advanced economies uh, point of view, and maybe more generally. And so I think that's that's what's that's good. The problem is, is before then, it's going to be really terrible. I mean, because like like the degree to which like part like Fauci is correct. Like part of the reason why we're having all this resurgence of 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 cases is because we never really actually got all these areas isolated. We were doing this selective by different state lockdown, and we had varieties, usually a poor disenfranchised communities, which were essentially diseased reservoirs. And now we say, great, we're done. Let's go back to the bars. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh. And so, and that, this is like, we're going to be like, it's going to be worse before it gets better. And the volatility over the next six to 12 months is going to be uh, pretty bad, which is one of the reasons it goes back to the very first thing, which is like plan on on volatility, plan on the need for adaptability. And what part of what that means is like, like monitor, study, think, rethink, and don't just presume now you know it, right? Because that volatility in a first order or second order effect may, may come get you when you're not looking. Well, Reed Hoffman, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today for the great conversation that reflects the many places in which you have been influential in the development of these massive ecosystems uh, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, um, as a thought leader. Uh, It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Jamie Head, the Chief Digital and Technology Officer of Ocean Spray Cranberries.